Well, good evening. It's good to see all of you. Jesus is coming back in Revelation 19, and that's where we are. And that's the chapter we'll begin looking at tonight. I'm glad that you're here. It's good to see all of you and those joining us online. We welcome you wherever you are and however you may be joining us and pray for God's blessings and presence uh, to be near you as well tonight. So this has been a fascinating study and really enjoyed it and looking forward to our time together tonight in Revelation chapter 19. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, I want to thank you tonight for Jesus uh, just being the the supreme uh, figure of, of revelation, of eternity, of the culmination of history. We thank you tonight for being the only Savior of the world. And Father, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to teach us, instruct us from your word tonight. God, those who, are, who have joined us here in person on campus, those who have joined us online, I pray your blessings and your presence uh, wherever they are, God, just to, to fill them as your word is spoken. Thank you again for all that you're doing, all that you will do to culminate the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, turn with me, Revelation chapter 19. Of course, I'll be in the ESV as I normally am, and we'll look at verses 1 through 10 tonight. So I have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is that Jesus is coming back again for the second time to earth. The bad news is we're not going to get to it tonight. Now, he may come back anyway, praise God if he does, but if he tarries uh, one more week, then we're going to talk about it next Wednesday night. So uh, the first 10 verses of, uh, of Revelation 19 talks about what heaven is doing to prepare for his second coming, and then verse 11 is his second coming. Well, I didn't want to, there's so much in, in verses 1 through 10, and so much in verses 11 through 21, I didn't want to rush all of it. And try to cram it all in tonight. So we're going to take our time and we're going to look at backgrounds and, and everything. Some of the wording that's used in verses 1 through 10. Heaven preparing for Jesus' return. And then at the end of Revelation is second coming on the white horse to culminate the world. So that's the good news and the bad news. The good news is he is coming back again. But the bad news is we're not going to talk about it tonight. But if he does, Terry, we will talk about it next Wednesday night. So, uh, let's look at a summary first of all. I want to summarize everything so far and give you a big picture. By way of summary, John, follower of Jesus, lived longer than the other disciples. The other disciples died martyrs' death relatively young. John lived to be older. He lived to be the longest of all the disciples. And the reason was he moved with Mary to Ephesus to take care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. You remember from the cross, Jesus said, take care of my, uh, uh, behold your, your son. And, and so John took that as I'm to take care of Mary the rest of her life. And so he did. And most theologians believe that he was granted longer life because he took care of Mary. So John is in Ephesus also preaching the gospel as the other disciples did. Roman emperor did not like it. The Roman government didn't like it because Christianity well, they saw as an upstart and they wanted to squelch it. And so they exiled John to the island of Patmos just off the uh, coast of, of uh, Ephesus there. By the way, he did make it off the island and go back. He didn't die uh, on Patmos. He did get to go back and he died in Ephesus. 
But he is there exiled on the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. He's by himself. It's, he's in, in the spirit on the Lord's day and receives the revelation from God. The revelation meaning the book of Revelation, all 22 chapters. He receives the revelation around 90 A.D. As we're, as we're trying to figure out this revelation, we've talked about some principles of how to interpret it. One is you, you exegete what's there. You don't eisegete. Exegete, exegete is drawing out what's already there. Eisegete is trying to read into something that's not there. So you don't eisegete revelation. You exegete. And then we looked at other principles such as the, the most literal interpretation is to be taken unless there's some reason it's obviously symbolic. So we're trying to figure out the revelation that John gave to us. He saw into heaven, and he's trying to put it in human words as to what he saw. So he had a pretty tough task to do, but the Holy Spirit was empowering him. So as he saw the revelation, the first thing he saw was Jesus gave him a personal word for the churches right around him. Church at Ephesus where he lived, Thyatira, Laodicea, seven of the local churches of Asia Minor that were around him. That was chapters 2 and 3. Then after the personal word from Jesus to give the churches, John was transported to the great throne room of God where he saw his first vision. And in this, he was transported to a great worship service where the Father God in Jesus was seen as the one worthy to open the scroll, the only one worthy to open the scroll. And the opening of that scroll began ushering in the events that will draw history to a close. Then as he saw Jesus open the scroll, you see the judgments that are poured out. And for seven years, called the Great Tribulation, the world will writhe in death pains waiting for Jesus to return. That's chapter 6 to 18. All the time, the devil is turning up the heat, trying one last ditch effort to overthrow Christ. He's always wanted to overthrow Christ. This is his final shot. This one seven-year period of great tribulation. First half of the seven-year period is recorded in chapters 6 through 11. Chapters 12 and 13 are the dramatic midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. And then chapters 14 to 18 are the violent last half of the tribulation. Now you may say, well, where's the rapture? Revelation doesn't mention it. Isn't that odd? Now, now, Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 5, but Revelation doesn't. So, the rapture could be, some say, at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. We don't go through any of it. Others say at the midpoint of the tribulation, which would be three and a half years in. We go through some of it, but not the most violent. Some say we go through all of it and there is no rapture. There's just a second coming. That's called the historical interpretation. So we don't, I haven't talked much about the rapture because Revelation doesn't talk about it. And I'm going to talk about what Scripture talks about. So really haven't talked about it a lot. But now we're to the second coming. So at the end of this seven-year great tribulation, the armies of the world are going to gather and they're going to attack Israel 
And Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by military armies and sieged. And just as the holy city is teetering on the brink of collapse by military forces, God sends the seventh and final bold judgment. And that is a storm, a violent storm. And a great earthquake, the greatest that the planet has ever known. In this great earthquake, Babylon is going to be destroyed. What's Babylon? Well, it could be symbolic for the new world order, or it could actually be a literal city that the Antichrist rebuilds around Baghdad. Could be either. But Babylon is going to be destroyed in the great earthquake, and it's going to be smoldering. And then Jesus, at the right moment in the clouds with splendor and glory, while Babylon is smoldering and the smoke is rising to heaven, which is mentioned in chapter 19, Jesus will return. So chapter 19 talks about his return. Chapter 20 uh, in two weeks, describes his millennial reign. And then chapters 21 and 22, we will wrap up the book by tw 21 and 22. That's the travel guide to heaven. That's somebody leading us through heaven to show us what it's going to be like. Those are going to be fun chapters to look at. So that's what we have left. So now in Revelation in 19, we're to the point where the world is culminating, history is culminating, and Jesus is about to return. Let's pause for a moment. Let's compare his first coming with his second coming. His first advent with his second advent. The first time Jesus came was uh, in the manger. as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. And at the end of his life, he rode a donkey. The second coming, he's going to be dressed not in swaddling clothes, but in vestments of victory. Not riding a donkey, but riding a white horse of triumph. First time he came, he was rejected. Second time he comes, he'll be embraced. First time he came, people were trying to figure out who he was and what he was about. Second time he comes, everybody will know, no doubt. First time he came, there was no room at the inn. Second time he comes, the world will be his dominion. First time he came, he was crucified. Second time he comes, he's glorified. First time he came, he was the author of salvation. Second time he comes, he's the finisher of faith. First time he came, he was known only to a few shepherds and a few wise men and a few residents of Bethlehem. But at the second coming, Lightning will flash from the east to the west and he will split the clouds in glory and the whole world will know he's here and every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. First time he came, the angels sang, 
glory to God in the highest. And the second time he comes, they'll sing hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Same Lord, different comings. So the moment we're at in chapter 19 is now at hand. The moment toward which all of history has been longing. From the days of Adam, to the days of Abraham, to the days of the patriarchs, to the days of Moses, to the, to the days of the nation of Israel and to the prophets, from the days of the Gospels, to the days of the early church, to the days of the global mission. All of history has been pointing to one event. He's coming back. And so now, as we open chapter 19, Jesus is standing in his real, resurrected, glorified body, preparing to descend. But before he does, there are ten verses where all of heaven is bursting into joy. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. The first ten verses of heaven's joy. Because Jesus is coming. And then next Wednesday we'll begin with verse 11. So, turn to chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. That was our summary. Letter B on your outline, rejoicing in heaven, verses 1 through 5. John says after this, now first of all, after what? Chapter 17, remember, Babylon is smoldering. Babylon has been destroyed. The harlot of Babylon has been destroyed. After the destruction, after this, John said, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Stop for a moment. This chapter, as I mentioned, divided into two parts, the rejoicing 1 through 5 and the second coming 11 through, through, uh, 1 through 10, second coming 11 through 21. But just as Jesus is on the precipice of returning to the smoldering globe, stopping the Battle of Armageddon, John's attention shifts to what's going on in heaven. And, and God in his wisdom gave you and me ten verses he wants us to know. Now, he could have just said, okay, Babylon's destroyed. We're going straight to Jesus. Come back. Praise God he's back. But for ten verses before he did, he wants you to know and me to know what's going on up there. Just at the exact moment Christ comes. Spoiler alert. What John sees and hears in ten verses overwhelms him. And he can't contain himself. First of all, he hears this loud multitude saying, Hallelujah! They were praising God that the harlots destroyed, that Babylon is gone. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. 
It's only mentioned four times in the New Testament. Did you know the word hallelujah is only four times in the entire New Testament? And all four of them are in Revelation 19. All four of them are in our chapter. Nowhere else in the New Testament. Now, there are several times in Psalms the word hallelujah is mentioned. But that's about it. Because hallelujah appears to be a sacred word for sacred occasions. And it's reserved for sacred occasions. In heaven, before Christ comes back. And you and I have the privilege in a worship service to shout it. And so many people don't. Someone said Revelation 19 is heaven's hallelujah chorus. Think of the most intense, pulsating worship service you can imagine. Multiply that by a billion. That's what John saw. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever the word hallelujah is mentioned, it's usually in connection to punishment of the ungodly, usually. How's it used in Revelation? Punishment of the ungodly. God is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and power, and that's what, that's what is shouted as John is listening to this hallelujah. And what's interesting is the word hallelujah here is an imperative. What's an imperative? It's a command. So John hears a command from an angel in heaven to say, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord, John! All of my creation! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. Why? Because the harlot's dead and the bride lives. So hallelujah. Now, at the first of 19, there are four songs that, that John heard. You're wondering, why do we have four songs in the worship service every time? Well, it's the biblical number. No, it's just a joke. But he heard four songs in this worship service of hallelujahs. Three of them were looking back at Babylon being destroyed, and they're praising God. And the fourth song is looking ahead to Jesus' return. So, Four songs are in the first ten verses. Now, look at verse 2. They're shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 2. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute, that's Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So John hears heaven praising God because God is righteous and just in sending that earthquake to obliterate Babylon. And heaven is saying, yep, they had it coming. It's lying in ruins because Babylon ruined so many people. It ruined so 
it's in ruins. And so by now, everyone has made their choice of salvation. At this point, starting in chapter 19, you don't see anybody else getting saved. Your eternal destiny is fixed. There are so many in our culture believe after they die, they're going to get a second chance to get things right with God through reincarnation. They are not. There's nothing in the Bible that even hints at reincarnation. So by now, choices are fixed. What you've done with Christ is, is fixed. Your, de- your destiny is fixed. And the fall of Babylon appears to be the consequences of believers praying. It has, God has judged the great prostitute, and that punishment is everlasting. Look at verse 3. Once more they cried out, and John heard them, Hallelujah! There's a second song. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So think about this now. 17, remember the earthquake that caught Babylon on fire, split the city in two. It's just burning. And verse 3 says, the smoke of Babylon is ascending up to heaven. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That smoldering effects of the demise does not stop when the fires die out because the judgment's next and her destruction permanent and folks those people who've never trusted Christ as Savior their destiny is fixed and their destruction is permanent as well God's punishment is an everlasting punishment look at verse 4 and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on his throne And they said, Amen. Hallelujah. There's the third. That's the third song. The third hallelujah. Praised by the 24 elders and the four living creatures we had met earlier in Revelation. Now they fall down and worship. Saying, Amen and hallelujah. And then look at verse 5. And from the throne came a voice, probably an angel saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So there's the third of the four songs. So verse 2 is one, verse 3 is one, verse 5 is one. Or rather, verse 2 is one, verse 4 is one, verse 5 is one. Verse 5 appears to be an allusion to the Hallel song, Psalms. You know the, the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113, Psalm 135, the songs of Hallelujah, Hallel meaning from Hallelujah. The Jews still talk about the Psalms of Hallel, meaning the Hallelujahs, where all classes of creation are to fear God. That's what he says here. Praise our God, you as servants, all who fear him, small and great. So in these first five verses, John sees rejoicing in heaven and the most powerful worship service he can can imagine. So now go to letter C on your outline and we'll spend the rest of our time looking at the marriage supper of the Lamb, verses 6 through 10. John said in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be 
the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. And what he's going to describe is, just before Jesus returns, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, you've probably heard that phrase your entire life. You've probably wondered, what is the marriage supper of the Lamb, and what does it look like? Well, let's talk about some of the background to it. I think it'll make a lot more sense. First of all, you've probably heard before that sharing a meal in Scripture was a big deal. Today, you can go eat with people who you don't know very well. Let's say everybody from your office is going to go out and eat, or you're going to meet some friends for lunch or for dinner, and they bring some friends with them. It's not a big deal to you. You hardly know them. You can eat with them and fellowship and visit. It's not a big deal. But in the Bible, you did not eat with someone unless you knew them very well. Or unless you were basically giving approval to them. That's why the religious leaders had a really hard time when Jesus ate with the tax collectors and sinners. Because you didn't eat with somebody unless, unless eating meant close fellowship. It was a big deal to have a meal with somebody in the Bible. Go one step further. It was a really big deal to have a meal with God. Happened a couple of times. Actually, three times. Genesis 18, uh, Abraham shared a meal with God. Exodus 24, you remember the passage, uh, 24 Moses had been to get the, the tablets of stone and God said, go down and get Aaron. This is the first time we went down and got Aaron. And he came back, and as he ascended up into the mountain, the elders were at the foot of the mountain, and they all rejoiced, and it says, and they ate and drank before God. Why? Jewish scholars especially scratching their head at that one. But it just praising God that his law is here, and he's fellowshipping with his people through his covenant. So, let's see, Abraham in Genesis 18, the elders at, at, the, at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. And then Jesus in Luke 24, 30 with his disciples, the Last Supper. It was a really, really big deal to have fellowship meal with God. Meals were celebratory. Meals were significant. And now Jesus is returning and is going to share a meal with you and me. His people who will enjoy covenant fellowship with him forever. So to celebrate this, notice this loud and enthusiastic praise of heaven. He says it again, look at verse 6. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. You, can, you know when you're somewhere and there's a ton of people there and they're talking and just the noise it creates, and, and especially there are thousands of people there. Like the roar of many waters. You ever been around a waterfall, maybe Niagara Falls? Or you can't even talk. It's so it's roaring so loud. Imagine many waterfalls. And like the sounds of mighty peals of thunder. Have you ever just been sitting around or you're lying in bed or whatever, and there's such a clap of thunder that's so loud, it just, you can feel it rumble, and then you jump straight out of bed and your heart's pounding. 
Can you imagine all of that together? And John is, it's cascading over John, and all of it is praise from heaven. Boy, nothing like our half-hearted worship services, huh? Nothing like ours. Well, preacher, you don't need to sing real loud in church. You need to be reverent in church. Boy, not there. He's shouting. We need to be dignified in church. No, no, not there. Nobody in heaven while praising, singing praises to God going... Not there. Totally different. Singing. Not singing out of duty. Singing from the heart. Shouting. Hallelujah. The Lamb reigns. I don't think we know what worship is till we get there. Listen to what Spurgeon said. You know Spurgeon, he always told it like it was. Spurgeon, one Sunday morning preaching about worship in church, said, All Christian duties should be done joyfully, but especially the work of praising God ought to be done joyfully. I've been in congregations, Spurgeon said, where the tune is glorious to the very last degree, where the time is so dreadfully slow getting through the hymn, you think you're singing through Psalm 119. And to use Isaac Watts' expression, eternity would seem too far too short to get through this hymn. And the spirit of the people singing it are so damp and so heavy and so dead, I think we're going to a hanging rather than to worship the ever-gracious God. Spurgeon told it like it was, didn't he? There's a difference, folks. So whenever we gather on Sundays, we're not just gathering because it's Sunday. We're invoking the presence of Almighty God to hear our hallelujahs. Because heaven's shouting hallelujah. And ours should come from the heart, not a quiet reverence, but a singing out because he's worthy. So now, in verse 6, all of heaven is anticipating the bride's return. Listen, they're crying out, verse 6, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Let me stop there, explain all that. What on earth was John hearing? He was hearing a hallelujah song that said, Praise God that the Lamb has been prepared for the bride, or the bride has been prepared for the Lamb. Who's the bride? Church, exactly right. The church, us. 
The word bride that is used here in, in verse 6, uh, in verse 7 and 8 uh, primarily is, is the word gyna, G-Y-N-E. Yes, the word gynecology just means study of women. Gyna is the word for woman. Uh, and so the word gyna is used here, could mean a woman or it could mean bride. Uh, it's used in the Septuagint uses it, Genesis 29, Deuteronomy 22, Matthew 1, 20, Revelation 21, 9, later describing it as the bride of Christ. So the bride is now joined as the wife of the Lamb. Jesus, the groom, marries his bride, the church. So the church, you and I, are the bride of Christ. Three metaphors of women in Revelation. In Revelation 12, the woman is Israel. Revelation 17, the woman is the harlot, Babylon. Revelation 19, the woman's the bride, the church. And all throughout Scripture, really starting with the prophets, God described himself as married to us. Ezekiel 16, he uses that, that analogy, he says, I'm married to you. Jeremiah 31 uses the same analogy. Isaiah 54 and 62, the same analogy. And the entire book of Hosea with the imagery of marrying the prostitute, is all the, uh, uh, saying that I'm married to you. So God has told his people, I'm married to you. In fact, the only time it's in a positive light is, in, is Isaiah. Ezekiel's negative because saying you've been unfaithful. Jeremiah's negative, you've been unfaithful. Hosea's negative, you've been unfaithful. Isaiah and Revelation are the only times the bride's actually been faithful. And so Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, and we are the bride. Now, you know, and I know, that a lot of people talk bad about churches today. They love Jesus, they just don't like church. I don't know how many people I have known, and I've seen posts on Facebook, and I've talked to personally, oh, I love Jesus, I just don't like churches. So what you're telling the Almighty is, I hate your bride. I like your bride. I, I love the groom, your son. I don't like his wife. He thinks an awful lot of us because we're, we're his. Now, I'm going to give you a little background about a Jewish wedding. Jewish wedding had three stages. First stage was parents got to choose the bride for their son. I kind of like that one, don't you? My son probably doesn't. Parents chose the bride. Number two, the bride, I mean the groom, their son, would then go with his friends to the bride's home and get her and bring her back to his home. The bride didn't know when he was going to come. So she had to stay ready. Constantly. See the imagery? Remember the imagery of Jesus in Matthew 25? The ten virgins waiting on the groom to get there. Keep your lamps 
wicks trimmed. You never know when he's coming. So the bride, the groom, goes with his friends, gets the, the bride, brings her to his home. And then, when she's there, the groom would provide a feast for, a, for family and friends at his home. And I mean that feast lasted days, and there was always joy at the feast. In fact, a wedding feast was the very best banquet, the very best party anybody in Jewish culture could go to. I mean, the marriage feast of, 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 of the bride and groom that was the very best food, and joy lasted days. So Jesus gave the parables. Remember those? The bridegroom is going to come for the bride. Don't know when. Be ready. And then the wedding at Cana, where all there was joy, and they ran out of wine. And, and you remember all of that? That's the background to Revelation 19. A couple of times on our visits to Israel with our group, we've stayed at a hotel where a Jewish wedding was taking place. Oh, my goodness. Whew. They don't sleep. I mean, there's party and there's music, and I mean, it's loud at the hotel out the gardens, and we, don't, we never like to stay where a Jewish wedding's going on because they go for days, and it's joyful and it's loud, and it's fun. They, it's a feast. And so, this praise in these verses is the preparedness of the bride. They're rejoicing that the groom is coming and the bride is ready. So, folks, as your pastor, my job is to keep you ready for his return. That when he gets here, we will be a church not stained by the world, holding to the truth, doing what he's commanded. So maybe sometimes you don't like decisions we make, and maybe sometimes people don't like what I teach or preach. But it's really not about pleasing you or pleasing them. It's all about having a spotless bride when the groom returns. It's my job, it's your job, to be ready, and spotless when he's here. Notice the antithesis of the harlot in seven, chapter 17, chapter 18. Notice the difference. There's a gaudy harlot in 18, and there's a spotless bride in 19. Now, Notice in verse 8, it says, For it was granted to her to clothe herself. So we are to clothe ourselves with fine linen, bright and pure. And according to most theologians, these are our works. These are things that you do. It's not your standing before Christ. You don't stand before Christ in your works. You stand before Christ in what He's done for you. But when you get there, your clothes your linen is bright and pure. Those are things you've done. Those are your works, according to this verse. So contrast the lovers of the harlot in 17, the nations of the world that do the one world commerce, 
contrast them with a chaste, spotless bride, pure and bright of the Lamb. Verse 9. And the angel said to me, so the first time anybody's ever said anything to John is verse 9. The angel said, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now I've got a question. If the groom goes to get the bride with his friends, in the analogy, who are the friends? We don't know. We're not told. The one theory is it's the 144,000 that were saved in the tribulation. It's one theory. Second theory is it's the saints of the Old Testament. They are now being redeemed as well. They go with the groom to get the church. We, we don't know. We're not told. We're just told that the angel told John, write these words down because if you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, you are blessed. Then look at verse 10. Verse 10 does not look like an appropriate response at all. At all. Verse 10. John said, then I fell down at his feet, the angel, to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold with the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Talk about that for a couple of moments and we'll close. Whatever John saw and heard so overwhelmed him, he fell down not at God's feet, but the feet of the angel. Why? Why would a godly man like John? Now remember, he was a follower of Jesus. He followed our Lord for three and a half years. He was at the cross when he died. He saw him after the resurrection. Why would he commit such a blunder of bowing before an angel and worshiping an angel rather than God? He was just so overwhelmed. We're not supposed to worship angels. Colossians 2.18 says don't do that. But he was so overwhelmed with what he saw. That he worshiped the one who showed it to him. How glorious must heaven be to hear the praises and the hallelujahs and the worship of God at the marriage of the Lamb, watching Jesus about to descend for the second time, and it's so overwhelming that you fall and worship the one who showed you it. <laughs> and the angel said, Get up, get up, don't, don't do that. Worship him. And John did. Now notice the final phrase. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That phrase has made theologians scratch their heads for a long time. What in the world is it talking about? For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy, remember, is preaching, right? Prophecy is forthtelling. Prophecy is not foretelling the future. Now, it, now, some foretelling might have elements of foretelling the future, but prophecy is not 
foretelling the future. Prophecy is foretelling, it's preaching. So the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of preaching. Two or three theories. One theory is what he's, what he's talking about. True preaching always bears witness to Jesus. Maybe. Another theory is, well, Jesus' testimony is the substance of your preaching. So whatever Jesus testified to, Old Testament, New Testament, we should testify to. Maybe. I think the best translation is in the genitive here, which means the testimony of Jesus is the substance of preaching. We preach what God has given us based on the testimony that the Old Testament prophesied a Messiah and the New Testament shows who the Messiah is and we take all of that prophecy together and that's the basis of what we proclaim to you. It looks like the genitive is the best interpretation. We don't know for certain but the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so we close the first 10 verses. Next week, Jesus is returning. John said, I see heaven opened and a white horse shows up. And he's coming. But one last thought before we close. As we close, we see the bride, the church, anticipating the return of the groom. And folks, that's where we are right now. We are right there right now. We are at the precipice of our groom coming to get us as a church. And at that moment, whenever he does, all the world is going to see who the church really is. Right now, she's so, sort of Cinderella sitting in the ashes. <laughs> sort of like Jesus in, John, in Isaiah 53. Now, the church, to a lot of cultures, an afterthought, neglected, marginalized, by a lot of people, not respected by some in secular culture. But when the sky splits and the horse and Jesus appears and his bride is ushered into his presence, all the world will finally know the glory of the church. Until that happens, we're to be faithful, we're to be spotless. We're to be ready. 701. So I don't have time for questions, comments. Sorry about that. If you want to talk about any, have any questions, want to visit about any passages, please feel free to see me afterwards or feel free to email me anytime. I'll be glad to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this powerful passage tonight. Thank you that you have included us as born again believers in Jesus in your body as the church is your bride. Lord, we look forward to the day when Christ comes and the world is made right. Right now, we're living in a fallen world that, God, sometimes it's hard to live in. But I praise you that one day you'll reign victorious. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.